0: Hey, Carrie Lynn. How are you? I am okay. Thank you. I am super
1: excited. Excitement doesn't even begin to describe where I am right now, Kathy. Uh, yes,
0: you are pretty much shaking and I know that you are going to completely geek out because we are talking to your people today. As someone who enjoys theater but doesn't live and breathe theater, I'm excited to hear more about like who writes a play about medical assistance and dying and not just any kind of play. Right, Carolyn? Like, I think this play is one that connects with the audience, that takes other people's stories and scaffolds them in the creation of the script.
1: Am I in point here? Absolutely. What you're describing very well is this whole idea of applied theatre projects and this idea that theatre can be a collaborative an interactive experience. But what we're really getting down to, and I do want to say Kathy before we go any further, that the play does also explore themes of suicide, so that's something that I'd like out there too before we get going, so that, you know, listeners can make those choices and take care as they lean in to listen. But I think what is really important is this idea that together we can be exploring some pretty heavy topics in a, a safe a way as possible. And in, I think, as we'll discover, in almost a, a fun and kind of you know imaginative and playful kind of way, which is something that I think a lot of people might not consider when we talk about medical assistance and dying. I think so too. And our guests
0: and the play that they have created, The Two-Sided Mirror, are going to be that catalyst for us to really get the conversation going. At the end of our interview today, there'll be a special segment about grieving during the holidays. Sadie is going to talk about what makes the holidays so challenging while grieving and what can you do to make this time of year a little bit easier. So please stay tuned to the end. And for now, let's get the conversation started. I want to welcome both of you, Simona and Catherine. If you wouldn't mind doing a nutshell introduction of yourselves, that would be great, please.
2: So I am a playwright. I'm based in Guelph, Ontario. I work in kind of two different areas of playwriting. One is the plays that I write myself about subjects that interest me. And the second is community-engaged co-creations. And this play is primarily uh, community-engaged co-creation. So with co-creations, instead of writing about what I want to say, I theatricalize what other groups of people want to have, have said, want to be shown on the stage. We worked with a group of 15 individuals whose lives have been impacted directly by babe, um, and also suicide, and talked about the differences between the two, and then worked on their stories and how they would fit into a play that would be theatrical and also informative for the general public. Fabulous. Thank you. That
0: co-creation, I'm going to want to hear more about as we move through our conversation, because one of the things that Carolyn and I have been involved in is co-creating digital stories. Um, I think that co-creation piece is uh, magical in some ways and also adds a different layer of complexity to the work, I would imagine. So I look forward to hearing more. Thank you. Simon?
3: Yes, I've been involved in the theatre for a long time, let's just say that. I started off in the professional circuit, so I directed for theatre companies across Canada. I was an actor, so I started to really look at, what do you want to do? Because it was very difficult. Having children, you get a family, and uh, that really made me want to look for something else. And that's when I started to look at other forms of theater, an interactive process called forum theater, forum as in the Greek forum, trying to create dialogue. And I started to really read and took classes with uh, Augusto Boao, who started the idea of theater of the oppressed, which comes from, in educational terms, Paulo Freire, pedagogy of the oppressed. And with that, I started to really look at, okay, this working with community, and that's what we really wanted to do with Mixed Company originally. We started to really look at how can we do this. I've worked over the last 30 years with homeless youth for about 25 years, homeless adults, doing shows for uh, schools on bullying, looking at various aspects that really affect people. Forum theater is a wonderful way of getting the community not just involved, but to come up with actionable items, actionable things that we can do when we look at a situation or a challenge. And whatever that challenge is, so we've done things like legislative theater, where we worked with a group of people who had trouble on the TTC. And the TTC came to our show and we just did a simple forum where a woman was having a trouble on the bus. And what we discovered was an amazing amount of information. First, where they come from. At that time, there were mostly male bus drivers. You don't go to the mail, and uh, you don't go to the authorities. They might call the police. All of those things that prevent a person would be there, especially a woman. And we were dealing with, uh, in this case, Asian women. So the big white guy would be sitting next to you, and you're feeling quite small. So we started to really look at it. And the TTC decided they needed to do something. And they wrote throughout the subway in 128 different languages what to do. But we have really looked at how. We can get community involved with theater the way it once was.
1: What I love, Simo, about your introductory comments really is about that piece that makes that difference between theater for theater's sake, and there is absolutely a space for that in an aesthetic and artistic form. But theatre for social change, and I think uh, that's why I've long taken on board that idea of applied theatre. What can I do with theatre to apply it in these social realms to affect social change, but not as the dramaturge or the practitioner, as the person who delivers the vehicle so that social action happens within the community where it needs to happen according to those community members. So all of this is just a wonderful introduction and I think that goes really beautifully into one of our questions and you've touched on this a little bit Simone but perhaps in greater detail using a two-sided mirror as a specific example why applied theater why form theater to tell this particular story and not a scripted directed play in say quote unquote the traditional sense
3: the idea of listening and what a good forum theater playwright does is listen to the community. What are these challenges? How can we look at these challenges and see ways in which we can come up with possible alternatives, possible solutions, so that there's never any suggestion that this is right, this is wrong. And that whole process of right and wrong is taken out. So whatever you're saying is correct. It's your story. It's whatever you want to say. And what we've done with Two-Sided Mirror is looked at the three topics, made, suicide, and depression. And with that, we were looking as to how we can get people to recognize when someone is going through the depression that might lead to suicide. And looking at the various things that happen. Uh, You start to drink, you're down, your whole body is, is going in that way. And we layered it with the daughter of the person that's going through the depression and thinking of suicide is dying of cancer. And that's where the maid comes in. When some family member comes up and says, I'm thinking of this, what happens to the family? How can we deal with this in a, an effective way rather than that emotional, which has to happen, the emotional outburst? You can't do this. You can't abandon me. You, you can't. And okay, let's take that and see what happens. So audience members can choose where they want to look at and how they might come up with options that we never thought of.
2: And- You know, one of the reasons that we really wanted to deal and to work with people who were impacted, particularly older adults who were impacted, is because they have a range of experience, as with the example that Simon gave, that no one playwright is ever going to think about, right? So they have a range of experience, and when they share their experiences, everyone in the group learns more, right? And that kind of ups the discourse to another level within the group to enable people to think about and and give ideas for making a really impactful play. Because everyone comes from a different experience. And and one of the things that mixed company theater, one of the terms they use is having a, a universal story. So it's not just picking one person out of 15 people's stories and sharing it. It's taking elements from different people's stories. And that's part of the reason that when we present these community engaged stories, there's always impact in the audience because there's such a range of experiences that are portrayed, uh, even if they're in a, a small amount. And it's presented to an audience in a non-threatening way. So it's not like me sitting down and saying to somebody, are you feeling depressed? Right? Audience members can then say, you know, Jim, when he did this, it was clear he was depressed and his family didn't react to it. And, and this is what they could have done differently. So it's, it's what mixed company theater calls rehearsing for reality, right? By seeing it on stage in a non-threatening way, then audience members are our hope. And the feedback we've gotten is that this has been successful, giving people ideas for how they can address the problems of suicide, made depression, right? And the feelings that families are having over them, how they can address them in their own lives.
0: I love that idea of rehearsing for reality. And I think it speaks a little bit to some of the research that Lynn and I have been doing in in terms of people wanting to share information and connect in different ways. And so how do you engage community around a topic like MADE? Did somebody come to your group and suggest this? What was it that sort of initiated the desire to put together a play around
2: MADE? Well, I proposed this idea to Simon because I guess of my history of working with older adults. So in 2014, I first worked with older adults on uh, co-creating a play about the reality of their lives. And after I did this, I was invited by the Suicide Awareness Council of Wellington Dufferin to do a a play about older adults and suicide. And for the first project, which was called Our Voices, we'd had a very wide open process where people just talked. And it became clear pretty quickly that people were not going to want to talk about their personal experience with suicide, either their own suicide attempt or a close family member or friend. So that's when I came up with the idea of meeting individually with people to write down their stories. So I would write them as a first person narrative as they told them to me. And then I met with the whole group and gave everyone a dual tang of all the stories, which were anonymous. So everybody in the room knew that one of these stories had been created by somebody in the, in the room. And this gave a whole level of comfort to people. So we did the play and it toured for three years, I think. Um, But all that time in the back of my mind was something that came up at talkbacks, which were, well, you know, he's old, right? This protagonist, he's old. And if he wants to die by suicide, I don't know why he shouldn't have that choice. And to me, that was kind of shocking. But then I thought back to before I had started working on the issue of suicide. And I thought, you know, I would have been confused about that, too, a few years ago. So I really wanted to do a play that outlined the difference between maid and suicide and, you know, the depression that leads to suicide. So I had worked with Mixed company before and made the proposal to Simone to start work on a play like that.
0: That's wonderful. And... I think we hear a lot in our work about some of the overlapping understanding of suicide and medical assistance in dying. And I'm curious when you have been putting your play out there and seeing things in the chat when it's been online or hearing comments for people, what's your sense of people's understanding about the differences?
3: There's still confusion. I would say, um, the, Play really does outline the difference and the reasons why. So, I think mm-hmm. that what we tried to do really is look at how can we tell when someone is in that situation so that it was much more subtle than, oh, I'm thinking about, you know, all of that, because it is subtle. People don't go around saying that, but they'll say other things that might give you a clue. And I think for us, it was really important that audience members start to see the difference. Sometimes you see it, sometimes you really are in your own world as we are, and you don't. But I think during the performance, we certainly had with one of the characters who had cancer, definitely feeling the pain, while another is feeling the pain through the depression. So there's links that are there. And I feel that in the theater, we can do things like that and then address it in a way that rather than people watch the show, oh, okay, great. Thank you so much. And leave. what we do is the first part is the challenge. Now there are solutions. Let's look at them. Let's see what we can do.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. So. When I think about what I like in theater, I like my theater to generally have a side of edginess. I'm in Thunder Bay and we have a local theater company called Magnus and they just did the runner here, which was a a one person, you're nodding your head, you know about it. So it was a one person show. I showed up not knowing a whole bunch about it and left saying, I'm really glad I saw that. I didn't enjoy it. But I am really glad I saw it because it challenged me and because it had elements of things within society that has, as Catherine had mentioned earlier, stigma attached to it. And so I'm wondering, what does the audience leave a performance of two-sided mirror feeling or thinking?
2: I think what people leave with is an expanded understanding about how, for one, how things could be happening in their lives that they're not aware of. So particularly when we're looking at somebody with depression, it's very easy to ignore that. Uh, he's getting older, it's winter, everyone's feeling low. And I think on the maid front, people are left with a better understanding of how it's human to find difficulty in challenging situations, like when a family member requests made. There's a lot of family dynamics that come out. And even professionals, Dr. Pabell, is sort of sliding the story because she doesn't really want to deal with it either, right? She's sort of putting words in the patient's mouth, not with any mean intent. And by the way, that particular episode in the play is exactly what one person in our group told us happened with her mother. So yeah, those are two main things that I think. Uh, Simon?
3: I think that the idea of the difference between what Jim was going to try to do and what Marissa was doing and how people talked about the teenager, Corinne and all of what was going through her. And there were some that could really get a sense that possibly Corinne could talk to the grandfather. We're looking at all these bystanders that could possibly do something. So the idea is to challenge the audience member to look at it and see the difference between what was going on with maid and suicide. And the reason why is clearly identified. Uh, the beautiful scene that I guess you've read between Marissa and Corinne, when Corinne finally accepts what, what's going on. And because she sees her mother in pain, she sees what is going on. And that scene for me always brought a tear to my eye. Uh, it, it's the kind of thing that you know it's coming from your heart. And it also gives an audience member an idea of how to look at acceptance. Because death is something that we tried to sweep. Because it used to be that the person dies in the home. The person is right there. We celebrate that person. There's a wake. There's a celebration. What's happened now is kids are not allowed to go to the funeral. But, you know, we don't want to traumatize them. Well, they're more traumatized if they are going to be allowed because there's no sense of closure. And so to start to open people to the possibilities is so important. And that's what we try to do.
2: Just to kind of add to that, I think the the feedback we're getting from people always includes the importance of communicating because it's so easy to get resentful. And like, I'm so angry, I'm not going to talk to you. And that doesn't solve anything, right? Communicating with other people and also listening to them, listening to what they're actually saying, right? In terms of rehearsing for reality, I'd say those are the, the major general themes that come out of the play.
1: Yeah, I think too, Catherine and Simo, I think what I really have garnered in our discussion so far is that breakdown of, of binaries, right? Not right, not wrong, but asking participants to really sit in the gray, right? Which is a hard thing to do when you're a squishy little human who's got conflicting ideas and having to have really hard conversations. So that really harkens back to what you both have shared about creating a safe space uh, or as safe as possible to be able to have these conversations. Catherine, you spoke specifically about creating first person narratives, but sharing them in a way that you're scaffolding the building of these plays so that people feel cloaked, you know, Kathy and I work in palliative care and the Greek for palliative means to cloak. So what you've really described to me is you've taken people, you've met them where they are, and you've said, I want to take you on this journey with me. I want to listen, but I need you to feel as comfortable as you can feel sitting in the uncertainty with me. And I think that's a tremendous takeaway for me from our discussion today, that leaving the theater thinking, I have confliction, but I'm okay to have these conflicting thoughts because I don't have to arrive at a definitive about these things. These are tough conversations to have, and these are tough human relationships to have. Perhaps we can talk a little bit about the role of the Joker in this piece of theater and why, Simone, as director, you made the choice to act as Joker in this piece.
3: The role of the Joker is one where we as a community can come together and the crucible I try to do is we're going to have fun even though we are looking at these themes that we don't want to look at we can have an enjoyable time we still can have fun and I start off really by having the audience play games once they've seen the first act they play some games and begin to loosen up. Okay, so, well, that was heavy. Let's move on. And then we sort of start that. uh, Do you have any ideas about what could be done? And then from there, people begin to look at the situation and develop those ideas. My objective is to make sure that I have response from everyone in the audience. And it's amazing that people, when they start to feel that, aspect of, no, no, I'm not going to get up. No, no, uh, no. What I do is I train the actors. Okay. You don't have to come. You stay where you are. What would you say? And then I tap the actor and they say what they would say, the audience member, and the actor begins to interact with them and they respond. And then they go, oh, uh, uh, um, uh, Oh, you're trying to get, so So they're doing that. And then the audience laughs. And I love that. I love to have that concept of an audience feeling so good about what's going on that they can speak up. I remember one time, um, (laughs) this was my chiropractor who knew what I did, and she said, oh, okay, I'll, I'll come and see the show, but I'm not getting up. I'm not getting up. I said, okay, yeah, sure. You don't have to. She comes to see the show. She's the first person to say something. And then I said, well, come on up and show us. And she's halfway there. And she goes, uh, oh, well, oh, I said, I wouldn't, I wouldn't. Oh, my God. Uh, Because you get caught up in what's going on. And that's the beauty of what it is that we're doing.
2: And you're very good, Simon, at breaking down the wall with the audience and making them feel comfortable, even on difficult subjects.
0: And that's what this very much sounds like. And Simon, when you were talking earlier about how, you know, we've kind of isolated ourselves from dying and death, let alone medical assistance in dying. And Carolyn and I, in our work, we talk a lot about death literacy and part of the goals of death literacy is not just to normalize the fact that 100% of us are going to die, but it's also to be able to extend that and socialize that. So it becomes expected and anticipated in all facets Of our world. And obviously, you're doing this so successfully with a two sided mirror. And so, I'm interested in from your own perspectives, then, as people who have been very much immersed in this phenomenal process, have you learned anything new about medical assistance in dying? Anything about MAID that you perhaps see differently, see from a different side of the mirror now?
3: I did a lot of reading, and that always sort of opens you up. There was one book called Bittersweet. And what it did for me was look at that hundred percent. We're all going to die. Looking as to those sweet moments, even when we are in the throes, we are so human that we have this scene where acceptance is there. The sweet and the bitter. I really played with that throughout when I was directing the show because I really wanted to look at how we as a society look at death and how sometimes we can get a little disconcerted with what's going on. You never want to think about your own death, but the the whole project made me think about what it is and also about your own parents. You know, my father had Alzheimer's, and with Alzheimer's came that long-term care, and he wanted to go. Uh, he caused himself to get pneumonia. My mother had a stroke, paralyzed. And when you're paralyzed, you, you're in the long term. Uh, and it was uh, a nightmare. They placed my mother somewhere 30 kilometers away from her family. And you're going, what the frig? So all these things started to creep up and think through. That was my experience in terms of it.
2: Yeah, for me with MADE, for sure by doing this project, I had a much better understanding of the complexities of it. And that it was, as with Simon, my personal experience along with the experience of working with the co-creators on the play. Um, when my aunt became ill last year, she was able to get MADE. And that's when, for me, I realized how what I always thought of as a blessing came with a really huge and heavy, heavy, heavy burden on your heart. And that led to to writing that monologue that Corinne has to her mother, right? Where she says, I feel like my heart's being ripped out. There's no easy solution here. So I, I would say I learned about the the complexities uh around Maid personally, because if you stand back far enough, it's like, yes, it's a good idea, right? But when your heart is involved, it becomes very challenging. And I think MAID is still really new in Canada, and we're all working out our relationship with MAID. And it's only by going through these various experiences that we're going to learn about ourselves and what we're capable of living with and and
1: dying with. I'm so pleased you shared what you just said, Catherine, because that sense of we're all really sorting out our relationship with medical assistance and dying. And I keep going back to that kernel of eradicating that binary, you know, that we, we don't necessarily have to be all in or all opposed. We really have to navigate the legislation as it continues to come at us and really think about where we stand. Simon, you you really spoke, and you as well, Catherine, about this whole situation of being in that sandwich generation, where you've got aging parents and aging older adults in your families, and also perhaps children of your own or nieces, nephews, family members of your own. And so you're sort of in the middle of kind of holding up the sky for all of those people. And Simo, you also touched on something that I truly believe in the work that I do. I work with children and adolescents in palliative and uh, certainly end-of-life care, and I always go back to Emerson's idea. And Emerson said that there were these bright hours as he was dying, that it wasn't all about impending death, that there were these bright moments of hilarity and laughter and fun and spaces where certainly children, of course, would continue to dwell until we die. We live, Kathy has shared with me, the idea that we live until we die. And the dying is the last bit of that journey. So what about those moments of joy and singing and laughter? And as you say, your chiropractor, I just have visions of your chiropractor, you know, rushing the stage and then coming under the awareness that, you know, but this was the last thing I want to do. And yet somehow caught up in the joyfulness that you've created in this hairy scene, right? Incredible. So moving forward, your plans, you
0: have some shows scheduled for Zoom. Is that correct?
3: That's right. We want as many people across the country as possible. Being on Zoom has been a revelation because of the geography. To bring a show to Saskatchewan would have been very expensive, but we were able to do it on Zoom and have people enjoy it from their homes, and we're doing the same. Uh, What we're hoping to do is bring back Two-Sided Mirror next year in trying to get to various communities in Northern Ontario, like Thunder Bay. What we're looking at is specific audiences, right? So that what we've decided is that it's got to be targeted. If you have, oh, there's a show on Zoom. No, it's got to be where it's really targeted audiences. And that's been our forte, getting the audience members.
0: And so along that, in terms of the audience members, are you seeing younger people, older people? Is there a particular population that you think is showing up?
3: Well, a lot of seniors are there, right? That's where we targeted a lot of them.
0: And Catherine, can I ask you about the title, The Two-Sided Mirror? What inspired the title and what are you hoping people will look at from that?
2: Well, there's, of course, two ways of looking at death right? As a a positive experience, as a negative experience. Uh, there's different ways of looking at yourself in life and the kind of experience that you're having in life. So it seemed appropriate. I mean, because both of them are resulting in end of life, but the nuances of that are very different.
0: I, I love that piece around the two-sidedness of the work or life or Important moments in life. And I know for me, as someone who educates the future healthcare providers of tomorrow, I am also someone who has had cancer and I'm a frequent flyer within our healthcare system. And so I often talk about it. Yeah, I get to see it from both sides of the bed. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Brian Goldwyn has that both sides of the gurney kind of idea. But, and I think that's what attracted me to this is that I think we do see with medical assistance and dying. You know, life and death, there's two sides. There's those who understand um, how made can be perceived by someone uh, with a terminal or life-limiting illness, but how also when it is around end of life and that saying goodbye, and you mentioned it before, Catherine, that complexity of our human relationships, um, that mirror can be such an important symbol
1: to be able to think about and for us to practice as we're rehearsing for reality. I have found this so uh, educative speaking with both of you, but also enthralling, you know, that these tools are an invitation to go at something from perhaps a different angle. And as you both really, or as I've inferred from what you've shared, setting the participants up so that they are willing to take those creative risks and then in doing so are willing to take those emotional risks. Simo, you said it so beautifully, you know, You've got to feel those feels. But feelings and emotions are not actions. And what you've both been able to do is acknowledge that there there needs to be a place for those emotions. That's vital. But then what has to happen next is where do we go from here? What's our next step? And I think that's of such great value in these really hard spaces. Hard things are hard. And you are both contributing to making them um, more chunkable and, and more manageable, and arguably enjoyable chunks. So I really commend both of you for your work. I, I am enthralled and inspired. So thank you.
3: One thing we haven't really talked about is that legislation within Made, and when we were doing the show, we got from various individuals comments. uh well. By saying "made" is all right, then you're saying that someone that's in poverty can't afford the rent and then wants to end it all has that capacity by saying, I'm depressed, uh, I'm suffering, that's it. Um, that's where I think the next steps are really to look at what we can do in addressing those aspects. Because... As we have stated, made is really important. When the person is going to die, then there's the others where uh, I'm, I've am i been depressed for five years. I uh, And where and how can we make that decision? And that's why I guess there's this whole debate now because they were supposed to give us what the new law was, but now they're saying, no, uh, we need more time. Yes, take all the time you need to figure this out.
2: Yeah, mate is already so complicated that adding in um, a whole mental illness aspect to it, right, it just it seems to me would blur it even more.
1: I think that's so important because really what I've understood, of course, is that, I mean, we're looking at systemic issues and it takes a village. And so we as a village, I think, need to be Really exploring how we feel about a lot of these issues, because um, I think you're quite right in terms of mental wellness, but also home insecurity or not being able to have access to things. Uh, Kathy and I often refer to this in our own work as not really having true choice uh, because we're not afforded. Systemically, the things that we need to, and when I say we, I'm speaking of the collective, we would need to live a a fruitful and healthy life. So I think that's it. These are systemic changes that need to take place. These are legislative changes that need to take place. You have a voice, but it's not being heard. And let's perhaps explore how those voices and ideas and concepts could be heard at a level where Change will be affected, but not just change by the privileged. And this is, of course, so important is that we're talking about people who are already disenfranchised, having legislation made for on their behalf that further, of course, disenfranchises them. And again, these are all my opinions, but I think that's what is so valuable too about what you shared, Simone, about next steps. You know, if the TTC will sit back or lean in and listen to its patrons, then, you know, again, manageable chunks by people who are directly affected, um, we're hopefully going to see some change.
0: So that leads me to ask, what do you hope will happen as a result of this community engagement with this beautiful play that has been co-constructed? Thinking about when people leave the performance, what do you hope will happen? And what do you hope we can learn from this moving forward?
2: Well, for me, I hope that people will open their minds and their hearts a bit more to, to Made and the issues surrounding it and try and think outside of what may be their own experience, which could be very limited to the experience that's being portrayed in the play that's based on other people's lives. And I hope people come to realize the difference, which is so important, between people who have a medical condition that is incurable and uh, not assuming that every person who has depression is in that category.
3: I totally agree. I think that uh, I certainly want an audience to look at the situation, see the complexities and begin to formulate where they stand. What, what is it that I feel about this situation? The fact that we can objectify by watching and seeing something that's happening, feel it, and still be able to say, well, that's not my mother, and be able to begin that process of looking. And um, and maybe when they are going through something, they can begin to reflect and open themselves up to what others might say or do rather than just feeling that. I I know that when my mother, for instance, had her stroke, there were people saying, well, you know, you could just say goodbye if you want. And you're going, well, well, wait a second. (laughs) And you're you're sort of like, uh, uh, so many things go through your head so that when I reflect on that, And Hope, when Marissa in the play says, I'm thinking about May, that opens up a whole new world for people oh my God, okay, where where do I stand? There's a a survey that we once looked at and where, um, when would youth consider May? And the answers were so different. It was stunning to see how different those answers were.
1: Wow, the beauty of qualitative research. <laughs>
4: yes.
0: I'm looking forward to uh, seeing the play in January, and I hope uh, that people do exactly what you intend, is that they spend some time looking from both sides of the mirror, challenging themselves, engaging in conversations, both in the context of the performance, but otherwise, outside of that back in community, back with their families, with their healthcare providers, and that it continues
1: to be a conversation that they repeat. It's just been exceptional to speak with you both today. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: This has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you again. Hugely appreciate it. Take good care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Great to meet you.
0: Carrie Lynn, that was just a phenomenal interview with Catherine and Simone. I learned a lot not being the theater geek that you are. I am. You're quite right. And I wouldn't say that you have to be a theater geek to get where they're coming from, right? Like this whole idea of engaging with community, having people co-create a story because it's stuff that they relate to, that it's the complexities, to use Catherine's term, of what they're living and what they're wrestling with and what they're trying to understand
1: in a more deeper way so that they can be with their people in the way that people need us to be. I think that's spot on. And I think the lovely aspect where Simone was talking about foreign theater and, and he talked about the true Greek idea that foreign theater is about dialogue, you know, trying to create a dialogue. And as you have purported from day one of our time together, let's get these conversations started.
0: And we all need to have those conversations. And I think this was a great example in terms of the two-sided mirror providing opportunity and the example of the chiropractor who thought she might not participate in the play, but couldn't hold back, right? And I think that's kind of all of us, healthcare providers, members of community. We're citizens. We're in this together, trying to figure out, learn more, and deepen our understanding about medical assistance and dying so that we know how it's going to impact us, that we understand in a different way of what people are asking for and why they're asking for it. And theater and two-sided mirror provides that catalyst in a different way for us to be able to engage and to spend some time reflecting and looking in the mirror for ourselves. And so I think this interview and the work that Simon and Catherine and the theater company are doing is an excellent example of how people can disrupt death and get people thinking and keep the conversation going. So please get out there, disrupt some death and keep the conversation going.
5: Hi, this is Sadie. I'm the editor of Disrupting Death. With the holidays approaching, the Disrupting Death team wanted to take a few minutes to talk about grieving during the holidays. This feels especially important to touch on given the happenings in the world right now. You may be experiencing a sense of collective grief. This is a type of grief that is experienced in response to global or societal issues. Unlike other kinds of grief, this grief is not focused on a personal loss, but rather on a shared sense of loss for the well-being of a specific community. So, whether you're experiencing collective grief, grieving someone who has accessed, made, someone who died naturally, unexpectedly, or perhaps you're anticipating a death, the holidays can be a challenging time. Knowledge equals power, so... Let's first chat a little bit about why the holidays may be challenging while grieving. First, there's a lot of societal expectations to be joyful during the holidays, which might make you feel like you need to put on a happy face, even if that doesn't really feel genuine to you right now. Second, the holidays are often built around shared traditions. These traditions may evoke memories and highlight your sense of loss. And third... The holidays emphasize togetherness. So for those whose person has died, the holidays can serve as a reminder of their absence. Or perhaps your feelings of grief make it challenging to connect with family and friends, which may reinforce feelings of isolation in your grief. So how can you make this challenging time a little bit easier for yourself? Firstly, give yourself permission to feel However you are feeling, without judgment, being human means experiencing a wide range of emotions. You are allowed to feel deep sorrow, and you are allowed to feel joy. Feeling guilty after having moments of joy or happiness during grief is a common experience. This may come from internal or external expectations of what grief should look like. Or you might feel as though feeling joy means you are forgetting or moving on from whoever or whatever you are grieving. However, grief is a complex and multifaceted experience. It doesn't follow a linear path. And experiencing a wide range of emotions, including joy, is part of the grieving process. So allow yourself to feel whatever it is you're feeling, whenever you are feeling, without judging. Once we accept our feelings, we are better able to advocate for ourselves. Which leads me to my second tip. Communicate your needs. Help others help you. Let your family and friends know what you need during the holidays. This might be needing more space or perhaps company. Whatever it is, communicate it to those around you. You may also find it helpful to set realistic expectations. Grieving can be emotionally and physically draining, so set realistic expectations of yourself. Don't feel pressured to show up during the holidays as you always have. It is okay if you aren't able to make your famous beef brisket this year. Allow yourself to take a step back and do what feels manageable for you. You may also find it helpful to find meaningful ways to honor whomever or whatever you are grieving. This could involve something like lighting a candle, doing an activity that your person enjoyed, or having intentional conversations where you share memories about the person who's died. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, be kind to yourself. Grieving is a personal process that takes time Allow yourself to grieve in your own way, at your own pace. Remember that everyone's grieving process is unique, so try not to compare yourself to others. Instead, do what feels right for you. Thank you so much for listening. Till next time.